What would it mean if we focused on the power of water systems design to climate destabilization? Today, we unlock a very powerful topic, and I know you're going to love it. That's today's show. And welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 343, and I have a brilliant guy joining me on the show today. I love Zach's work. Zach Weiss is his name, and I've seen him speak a couple of times at a couple of different events over the years and followed him on Instagram and the work that they're doing at Water Stories. And I can say hand on heart that you are going to be very inspired by what you hear today on the show. So Zach is a protege of the revolutionary Austrian farmer Sepp Holzer. Uh, And Zach is the first person to earn Holzer Practitioner Certification directly from SEP through a rigorous two-year apprenticeship working on projects in North America and Europe. And after 10 years of building water retention projects for clients around the world, SEP said that there needs to be hundreds of thousands of Zachs working around the world. Millions would be even better. And in that moment, uh, the idea for Water Stories was born. And this is a framework so that any professional land steward or concerned citizen can have the same positive impact on their waters and lands, uh, no matter where we are. And I think what was really inspiring about this conversation with Zach was that we looked at city water, regional water, uh, water in terms of wanting to become more robust on both extremes, i.e. flood and drought, and how water retention strategies and water systems design can actually change the climate and make it more stable. So you wonder why this is not front page news. uh, And it's probably because it's not a big corporate giant with a climate solution idea. It's good people working on the ground. Uh, And I'm just so privileged to be able to share stories like Zach's and share his work. Because for me, if I can help wake people up to the many ways that we can get behind uh, climate uh, change in terms of uh, starting to firstly become more robust in the extremes that have augmented themselves on both sides of drought and um, and flood and fire uh, and rain bombs and all the rest, but also how we might start to actually reverse that extreme presentation of weather and restabilize. It's really quite fascinating to me and I know it will be to you too. So I urge you to follow Water Stories on Instagram so that you can keep up with their work. They have a YouTube channel as well and I'm going to hook into that conversation uh, in a little minute. Now we can't put on this show without our wonderful sponsors. It's not every day I get to feel like Oprah but I sure feel like her this week being able to give away a latex mattress. Now unfortunately it's not the kind of Oprah where everybody gets a latex mattress. But thanks to the Natural Bedding Company, our supporters, this month, you have the chance, if you're an Aussie, to head to Instagram and win a single latex mattress. Any of the single latex mattresses in their range or put the value of that mattress to a size that you need. So if you're shopping around for a queen, a double king, whatever, at the moment, you can put that value toward your purchase. So it's a huge giveaway, over $1,000 worth. And one lucky winner by the end of this week is going to have won one. So head over to Instagram and uh, like the Natural Bedding Company's profile, of course, and Lotox Life on Instagram and comment that you would love to be a winner. That's it. That's all you have to do. But if you didn't win the mattress and you're listening to this a little bit later in the month of August, you still have a chance to get a huge benefit. So they are giving us 20% off organic latex latex mattresses and the entire pillow range 
and organic cotton products. So that's a huge saving, especially when things are a little bit more exy uh, in our everyday lives at the moment. Your code is LOWTOXORG23, uh, and that org is A-U-G, so think short for August, LOWTOXORG23. Uh, and you enter that at the checkout on their website, head to the Natural Bedding Company's website to check out the range. Uh, so many low toxes over the years have uh, absolutely loved their purchases and often comment in our chat groups about how much they're enjoying them. They also have some beautiful sustainably sourced Australian timber furniture that you might want to have a look at. Uh, and they have an onshore manufacturing commitment uh, with their workshop here in Sydney's Inner West. A beautiful brand, great people uh, doing wonderful things in the low-tox uh, bedding space. 20% off for the month of August and, of course, the huge giveaway this week. Good luck. We also, of course, have our major sponsor, Oz Climate, who are with us for the entirety of 2023, giving you 10 extra percent off their already discounted prices over at ozclimate.com.au. All you have to do is enter the discount code LOWTOXLIFE at the checkout. Uh, you can also actually use that discount if you want to have a chat to their customer service over the phone to decide what kind of unit, whether it's a dehumidifier that you're looking at or one of their air filters, uh, they will honour that discount with phone purchases as well. Oz Climate uh, Winix air purifiers are fantastic, especially we have the allergy season creeping up around the corner. I know it's made a huge difference for us here in terms of dust in the bedroom, uh, or you might want to look at one of their larger four or five stage units with the hospital grade true HEPA filtration, which is of course across the whole range, but the large one has uh, also the um, pet filter that you could possibly add in the mix and uh, covers a much bigger surface area. So go check out the Winix Air Purifier range, or if you're like me and a dehumidification ninja, you cannot live without at least having a compact air purif uh, dehumidifier in your bathroom for after the showers, let's say, or in the winter when the towels don't fully dry, uh, or if you have that shady part of the house where you need to keep one in a study or a bedroom. Uh, because it doesn't get as much sun. They really are a game changer. So thank you to our sponsors. We couldn't do the show without you. And here is this amazing chat with the lovely Zachary Weiss. Hello, Zach. How are you? Good. Very good. How are you, Alex? I'm great. I'm very excited to bring your work to our show. Uh, and I'm just going to come right out and ask you, when did you become so interested in water on our planet? Great question. It was really as a kid, I think, like so many young people, if we're exposed to nature, we really tend to fall in love with it. And I was lucky to grow up in the woods and really, you know, there's a huge spring right out my backyard. Oh, I wow. never knew how special these things were. But so I was playing in the spring water as a kid, and I always wanted to do something for nature, something helpful to nature went through various different paths, university, didn't really find anything fulfilling with any of it. And then I came across Sepp Holzer, who just blew my world open as far as what's possible when we work with nature. And so much of it really came back to water. Uh, and so, you know, my love was nature, but nature and water, water is this underlying structure of everything alive. And so the two really naturally go hand in hand. Mm. And how did you meet Sepp? Uh, like, how, he's a legend. You, you're not just walking along one day like, hey, how did that come to be? You know, it's amazing. It's hard to tell with some occurrences in your life how or why they happen. But I just heard the name Sepp Holzer about two months before. Saw a few videos. It just, it was like, oh, I need to meet this person. This is incredible. This is everything I dreamed of as a kid. And then two months later, he was coming to Montana for a workshop where I was living. And someone literally found a flyer on the street and said, hey, this sounds like you'd be interested. You got to check this out. Went to the workshop. It just grabbed me like nothing ever has before. I was working from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day and never felt more energized, more alive. Uh, and so I just started working outside of the workshop to help make the project happen and that's how I really got my foot in the door with SEP and got to 
continue bringing him to the U.S. with a team of people and English speakers to Austria. Uh, and I really worked with him pretty extensively over a five-year period, learned an incredible amount, um, and I'm very much in communication with him still. And uh, every time I'm with him, I continue to learn more. Mm, I bet. And I bet you're teaching him a thing or two now from the projects that you work on. Um Water retention, uh, if we put that in the context of being a middle-aged woman, is not such a great thing. But in uh, in on our planet, it is so key. Can we actually break down uh, how important it is? We just for some um, reflective context, we just had two La Nina events, one after the other here in Sydney. I live in a cul-de-sac that then has stairs that go down to a park and seeing this water just amass and collect like a little wave at the end of our street. It was so much pressure coming down um, from the skies and seeing it disappear and dissipate is heartbreaking. When you then get the announcement a few months later that we're moving to an El Nino and it's going to whip around fast and what that's going to mean for us and all of a sudden people are talking about water restrictions and it's literally within months of that last event and you think how is it 2023 and a global city like Sydney with so many resources to make something really special happen when it comes to water retention how are we not doing that yet why i it's it's mind blowing in a way cuz it's so simple it's so effective it has so many positive ripple effects through economics through quality of life through temperatures through climate through animals through vegetation it's amazing that we're not doing more with it because it's just this foundational piece of our landscape in so many landscapes we get plenty of water it's just how we hold on to that water whether it leaves immediately, whether it's rejected or whether it's really received. And it can be hard to understand, but drought and flood are actually two sides of the same coin. That's why we see more and more horrific flood followed by horrific drought. And how can you guys, having just had so much rain for such a long period of time, and you know, in a matter of months, you're back into water restrictions and water scarcity, and it's really from how humans have changed the landscape previously. Right? There's this natural process of complexification that leads to more and more water being on the landscape. And then humans in our simplification of the landscape tended to drain and desiccate everywhere that we're developing, whether for agriculture or cities or roads or buildings. And so this long cascade of desertification has really led to this situation now where it's feast or famine, nothing in between, extreme temperatures, extreme deluge, extreme drought, extreme fire. And it's a process that I call the watershed death spiral. It's really, you know, you see it very much so in Australia, very much so in California, very much so in a lot of places um, all throughout Europe. And now you even see in places like the cloud forest, drought is starting to become an issue. And how is drought an issue in the cloud forest? It almost doesn't compute, but it's how we treat the water that we receive. Is it immediately shunted away down drains and fed into the ocean? Or do we actually hold on to that water, recharge it into the ground? And then kind of the unspoken crisis is just how much we're extracting from the ground without mm. putting anything back. Yeah. So everything that would have recharged, we're draining away, and then we're also sucking it dry at the same time. And it's leading to these really severe crises and catastrophes. Yeah. And so can you help us understand the climate change impact uh, of that? Because I think a lot of there, there's been a, a corporate hijacking of the climate change conversation, as we know, and it's quite horrifying when you see like these bizarre fake meats in the supermarket packed in soft plastic and, you know, you just think that, that surely can't be the answer or like tons of solar panels which require the cutting down of trees to set up the solar farm and you think, hold on, like what are we doing here? Can you please explain to us, Zach, how managing our water better stabilizes the climate what's the what's the mechanism 
Yeah, water is the regulator of climate on our planet. Now, with the initial models and everything, water is too complicated to model. There, it has all these ways that it heats up, cools down. It exists in three different phases. Very complex. We can't build a climate model that accounts for water in that climate model. So we just set it as a, a neutral factor uh, or a stable variable. But really, when we think about it, it it doesn't make much sense. When you the heat holding capacity, the amount of heat that's required to change one gram of a material one degree. When you look at water versus CO2, it's five times more heat holding capacity right away. Every degree that it changes, it's 5x. But then water exists in three different phases. And when we think about the amount of energy to take water from near freezing to near boiling, it's to get that 100 degrees, it's one calorie per gram per degree. So it's 100 calories for one gram. When we take water from a liquid to a vapor, that's 590 calories. So we're getting 6x from freezing to boiling, which is this huge amount of heat holding capacity just in that phase change that's happening constantly between ice, liquid, and gas. And so when we look at what regulates temperature on our planet, somewhere between 70 to 95% of that temperature regulation is done by the processes of water. Somewhere between four and 20% is by the processes of all carbon greenhouse gases. Uh, so the real control valve is water, but we're looking at it as if we haven't changed anything. When you look at our landscape, Australia has lost 95% of its wetlands in the last hundred years. That has a huge impact on water. So we can't say that our impact on water is neutral and all that water that was drained would have been absorbing a huge amount of heat. Then as trees transpiring, it's absorbing a huge amount of heat. That heat is absorbed into the water vapor, goes into the atmosphere, condenses higher in the atmosphere, that heat releases back out to space. So we have this natural cooling mechanism of healthy ecosystems of evaporative cooling and transpiration cooling, and we're destroying it and then wondering why it's getting so much hotter. Mm. So you would uh, like people to know then that this is definitely man-engineered uh, in terms of the wasting away of our water systems and it's not, oh, yeah, the planet just cools and heats every now and then and, like, there's nothing we can do uh, because you get so many politicised and polarised arguments and, you know, because they believe in one single issue, they then gather a whole bunch of momentum for a whole bunch of other issues that that silo then says, well, you, if you're in our tribe, then you believe all of this stuff. And it's really hurting us on both extremes of the political spectrum because then no one's overlapping and moving forward. And and so I, I worry that this very important piece of the puzzle, while everyone fights over fossil fuels and beef or beans, is literally never talked about, which is exactly why we're here. It's got to be understood more. It is the linchpin to what happens to life on earth, really. If we think, you know, all life is two thirds by volume, 99% molecularly water. So as we drain water off of the earth, the earth cannot sustain as much life. And, you know, I think it's, it's a lot easier to reduce things down to one variable and say, we just need to make a machine that sucks this one variable out of the atmosphere, and then we can fix everything. We can keep raping the planet. We can keep destroying waterways. We can keep concreting the soil. We can keep doing all these negative things. But the real kicker is even if we get back to pre-industrial levels of CO2, drought, flood, fire, extreme temperatures, all of these quality of life impacts are still going to be there because those are from the disturbance of the water cycle. And then on the flip side, I think it's incredibly hopeful because we can do something about water very quickly. We can see the results very quickly. When we're talking about CO2, we don't even know if it's working for 10, 20, 50 years. When we're talking about water, we know the first rainy season, if it's working, we see the impacts, we can build on it. And so I see it as this huge potential bridge issue 
because I can talk to people on either side of the extreme and they want clean water for their kids. That's they it. They want a livable It's the overlap. Planet. It is the overlap. You want to be able to drink clean water no matter who you vote for. Exactly, exactly. And we're in this spot where it's, uh, you know, I feel like the governments are just dividing and conquering us for corporate gains. Yeah. Let's get everyone just hating each other so that they don't turn on our us. corrupt yes. butts. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, I mentioned I mentioned things like Citizens United that you guys uh, had passed, uh, what, a couple of decades ago or something now. And, uh, and people don't even know what it is and how it impacted the future of our planet. Um, the corporate takeover of government is essentially what Citizens United is. And, um, and, and I think, uh, you know, I wasn't saying that we, we stop worrying about dirty fossil fuel air and um, extractive farming methods, uh, but it, it seems to me exactly as you say, if we're all fighting each other, then we're not looking at what the real problems are systemically. And Fighting means we don't continue to look for deeper solutions that really make an impact. So can I ask you, Zach, we've got a farm. Let's say we have this farm. It goes from drought to flood. They don't have um, a healthy water system. How does one go about restoring um, a healthy water system? And what does that farm landscape hope to see that happens so quickly because that'll just really help people understand how powerful this is. Yeah. Great, great question. And it really starts with reading and understanding the landscape. So my favorite activity to get people to do is go outside during the rain, see where water's flowing, see where water's running. Where is it carving and eroding? Where is it gathering? Where is it fleeing? And then you can really start to understand, okay, we have all of this beautiful resource, the, ultimate capital for any farmer. They can be farming corn or cows, but they're really farming water in both senses. Uh, and so if they can find the ways then to restructure or repair their soil, their earth, their infrastructure as it relates to water, they can very quickly hold that water, sink it into the ground, recharge it, now they're a net benefit to creeks, rivers, springs, streams, aquifers downstream, but they're also balancing out these extremes. Now they have water to get through the dry season. They have growth through the dry season. And now you also have this wonderful vegetative transportive cooling all the way through the long, hot, dry season because there's enough water for that photosynthesis. And so, on the landscape, it oftentimes looks like repairing drains into retention features. A lot of times landscapes have been deliberately drained in previous wet times to be able to farm it, to crop it. But if we can actually hold that water, return it to its floodplain, let it infiltrate, modify our cultivation so that we don't need to get through year round, we can do things at selective times and a little bit smarter with the natural cycles, now we can start to have a farm where our inputs go down, our yields go up year after year, and the health of our landscape and our environment is improving instead of degrading, even though we're producing a really nice yield. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I mean, when I was writing my second book on food and I put a lot about regenerative farming in there, I didn't put anything about water um, but it, it's one of those things that I just thought, oh my gosh, like if I open that in here, I think I'll freak everybody out um, about everything that you have to worry about. But one thing that I did was I researched a lot of farms and why farmers had transitioned to various forms of um, regenerative agriculture. And it, what they learned time and again was, oh, wow. And in this season, I now have this to offer. And that season I have that to offer. And I used to just offer the one thing and try and get the land to do what I needed it to do. And now I'm looking at what the land can produce in its colorful palette as the seasons move through. And the bounty is incredible. And so then it brings us back to the power of biodiversity for a healthy landscape. And, and so do you see in your projects an incredible biodiversity transformation as well? Everyone's worried about extinction. Uh, but, you know, if we work on water and we start to regenerate, that comes back too. Oh, absolutely. And uh, we see so many increases. It's hard to even quantify. When you 
bring water to land, life just erupts out of it. Whether it's the insects in the water, the salamanders, the fish, the birds, the animals that need something to drink every day, really just life starts to bring itself all around. And it's amazing how quick it happens. I mean, we've built water bodies and within a few days of there being water in them, there's already all sorts of insects, there's already frogs. Life wants to happen. And if we just help it go in the right direction, we can just accomplish some incredible things. Sepp always likes to say that 70% of the work is in the water. If you get the water taken care of, 70% of your work as a farmer is done. You are going to grow lush vegetation. Now you just have to decide and select what lush vegetation you have. And I think we've been so misled in this idea that we need industrial agriculture to feed the world because industrial agriculture is very effective at one thing and one thing only, and that is the harvest. You can turn a thousand acres into a crop with one person in a tractor or a few people in a tractor. It is much less efficient at actually producing food. When you look at any ecosystem, its interconnectedness is directly correlated with its productivity. So when you have these diverse systems, they produce 10, 20, 50 times as much food per acre, but it's a lot harder to harvest and get to market. But it also enables this different relationship where you're not forcing your will on the landscape. You're actually just enjoying the conditions that you have that year. So if it's a really wet year, something does exceptionally well. If it's a really dry year, something different does exceptionally well. You're not always complaining about the conditions. You're just able to enjoy it and really thrive in the bounty that you've created. Mm. And that's going to change uh, how you cook. It's going to change. The level of nourishment is not often talked about when we move to this more collective system um, that uh, was long before us. And, uh, you know, I think Vandana Shiva has done some work with her entourage about actually analysing the nutrients that go up per acre uh, in terms of feeding the world. Like you can fill us up, but are we actually nourished? That's two very different things, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, I just I think it's, it's something so powerful that we actually have to change quite um, quite a lot on our expectation front as well. So I'm talking, you pick up your chef's recipe book, you think, oh, I want to make a, a carrot tart tonight because that's what I want to make. And you go to the shops and like all of a sudden there's no carrots. And they're like, yeah, that's because we're farming in a different way now. And what we've got is this bounty of, and you have to actually go, oh, how amazing. Well, I'm going to do something with that as well. But we've become so rigid um, and we have to, and I had my own experience of that, wanting to make a pear tart and going to my organic shop that I had started going to. And they're like, yeah, no, nah, not in November, sweetheart. <laughs> I had no idea 20 years ago. Why? I'm like, but I want pears today. And that was my wake up. And, and I think we really need to wake up to a flexibility again, instead of a rigidity. Absolutely. And we're just so separated from the natural processes that sustain us mm. that we don't have that awareness. And it really can be an enjoyment factor. I mean, when you take a, a ripe pear and a store-bought pear from the other hemisphere oh, yeah. at the wrong time of year, I mean, the one is just <laughs> trash. It's trash yeah. flavor-wise. It's trash nutritionally. Like you're saying, it's just filling us up, but it's not actually nourishing us or feeding us. And the other piece is that when we actually live on a landscape, we don't want to go to one five hectare block to pick the tomatoes and a different five hectare block to pick the let. You want to go into a garden where everything's incorporated and you can pick your salad all within one small area of this incredible diversity that's in front of you. Uh, but we just have such a narrow thinking of things need to be in rows, things need to be in groups they grow worse with all of those things. They're in competition, they're in stress. Whereas if it's different plants, they actually support one another. And so you can grow much more and much healthier, less disease, less need for fertilizers and pesticides. And it's actually easier for the people living there. It just doesn't work in an industrialized food system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um tiny story about my tiny landscape talking tiny little pot on my balcony 
I've got um, sun all morning and uh, and a metal floor on the balcony. So it gets really hot and we've found it really hard to grow stuff. But there are a few things that we've managed to grow. And um, one of my lessons was thyme and it just kept dying. And it's like my favourite herb to just have out and, and pick and bring inside. And then a weed started growing in the pot and it towered over the thyme. And my son was like, do you want me to pull out that weed that's, you know, come up in the, in the thyme pot? And I'm like, no, sweetheart, look, the thyme's coming back to life. And so this weed um, that we have this idea we have to just get rid of it ended up sheltering the thyme so that the thyme could survive and they became friends. And I just think, like, what a beautiful story in inner Sydney um, about how um, biodiversity actually works for everyone thriving instead of, you know, one champion and then everything else dies. It's it's like we if we tune in, no matter where you live, you can start to see examples. Absolutely. That's such a beautiful story. And that's happening all the time everywhere. Mm. It's just are we paying attention to it or are we so pre-wired to do things in one way that we're actually going to work a against our own self-interest just for trying to hold up this theoretical ideal. Mm, yeah. Oh. Okay. So I want you to tell us about some really beautiful regeneration projects um, where we're restoring the water system, because when we can go, Oh my gosh, that story about that farm in that country or like, cause it doesn't, it's, it's not about um, even particular countries doing better, is it? It's actually about the water system anywhere than creating abundance anywhere. Absolutely. And you can go to different parts of the world and the examples look different, but it all works. It all produces for people. Um, so it, do I have time to run a few through a yes, few different ones? Yes, please. Yeah. Yes. Like even so, like really diverse as well. So people get the message that yeah. you can do this anywhere. Yeah. Awesome. So, I mean, just to paint the some of the pictures of what's possible, you look at Sepp Holzer and his family farm, the Kramaterhof. It's a steep land high in the mountains in the coldest part of Austria and there he created all these water bodies. He created this farm that just produces food year round in the harshest conditions with very little maintenance and effort because it's so interconnected. Everything feeds into something else. And so he built this beautiful place. Then he went around the world doing different projects. One, his new farm is a place where uh, probably about 17 years ago now, he came in and he did some work and then the client at the time didn't really do any maintenance. 10 years, there was basically nothing done. And then I ended up going there around 11, 12 years and food is falling on the ground everywhere. Literally no one has done anything with this landscape for 10 years. They just set the water upright, set the plants upright, let it go in the direction that it wanted to. And yes, it could be better in all these ways and it could produce more food, but it was literally throwing food at the ground year round. Um, so then you go to even drier places like in the Extremadura in Spain. And again, you in another project in Portugal, you have these communities or farms that basically have no water or out of options, don't even know if they can stay there. And then just by holding those seasonal flows, even in these places with a, you know, nine to 11 month dry season, sometimes they can balance out that water supply. They can recharge aquifers and they can make abundant water for agriculture. You know, then you go to the United States projects that we've done. We've seen 20 X increases in spring flow from the work that we've done. So, you know, we're going from a tiny little trickle to just like a really healthy amount of water year round. And this is in like two years time. I mean, no time in the concept of ecological time or geological time. Um, you know, different examples in Africa. One guy was jailed to his land. He was speaking up against corruption. So they put him under house arrest. They blacklisted him so he couldn't work. And he had this rocky piece of ground that didn't get any water and had to you know, create a future for his family there. He created all these little 
he calls them water immigration basins, where he immigrates water into the ground and he built up the water in the ground to the point where he doesn't even need to use his wells anymore because he has springs and there's enough water that the plants can all tap into it. And this is a guy with nothing, literally handcuffs around his arms and he was able to create this. And then I think my favorite example, you look in India and the work that Rajendra Singh has done, there they motivated these communities where all the young people had left, the water was run out in the villages, there was no future, they all went to the cities. And it was actually the old people that were even going blind from malnutrition that were able to revive the traditional structures, build these decentralized water retention features, recharge their own aquifers, and eventually they've now revived 13 rivers, 13 rivers that were either dry almost year round or dry most of the year now flow year round. They've lowered the temperature two degrees Celsius in this region. Wow. So that is the news I want to make very clear is what happens when we do this work. But two degrees. Everyone's panicking about 1.5. If we work on our water... Wow. And and what was the um the time period that they, they achieved that in? 35 years. Wow. So, I mean, that's a really short time period, but you got to also realize these were people with nothing, really close to nothing in mm. the desert in India. And so it was one project at a time. And then the neighboring villages saw it and said, oh, they have water now. Well, we're going to do it. And so the first 10 years of that was like a crawl you know, very slow. And then the last 20 years has been this real spike. So we can say it took 35 years, but it was actually more like 10 to 20 years if everyone works together in a cohesive manner. Hmm. Incredible. Uh, incredible. And and so can I ask you what you would do if you got to a Californian farm that had, you know, that had wildfires the last few years around and it was really, really dry, like what are the first steps of you and a project team going in there and rehabilitating that land from a water perspective? Like what does the work actually look like? A great question. And I love that you mentioned those things because we have just the perfect example. Uh, this project I did with SEP in Southern California and so first we always come in and we need to understand the land and we need to understand the goals of the people living there. And then we need to find the best way to marry those two things. So what quality of life do people want? Do they just want to live in a wild place? Do they want to produce all their own food? Do they want to have a pond to swim in? And then what are the capabilities of that land? And how can we best receive the water that that land does get? Uh, and so this case, you know, very dry, Southern California, pretty much desert chaparral. We built a couple of different water retention features, water bodies, earthen dams made just with clay materials and equipment. Uh, and then we terraced a big area uh, so that the water that was received would first infiltrate and then the overflow would feed into the different water bodies that we had created. And then we planted an agroforestry system and a lot of trees that are very green, that are fire retardant, and that produce food, fruit, nuts, berries. Now, flash forward a couple of years, the fire comes through the area, all the neighbors burned, but this property was saved. The amount of water that we had infiltrated stopped the fire almost at the border. So saved the house once from fire. Then after the fire comes the flooding rains, and came the landslide from above that would have covered the house. It would have been a whole mudslide through the house. And that water body that we created caught the whole mudslide. So they had to dig the mudslide back out of the water body, but that's a lot easier than fixing a whole house. And so it saved the house twice, once from fire, once from landslide, and everything we did was illegal. We had to do it with no permits. We can't really tech, you know, show this project. I don't talk about it a lot because we have to keep the people safe because even though it saved the house, it improved the environment, it made it better for the neighbors, nothing that we did is allowed under the current government regulations. Don't worry, Zach. It's just between you, me, and 80,000 people. <laughs> 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 okay, so... 
Okay, so I really then want to ask you, because that is amazing. And that was just, what, a couple of years, you said, that that was achieved in? Yeah, I mean, we only worked on the project for one month. And then wow. there was a little bit of maintenance work, you know, some occasional irrigation to get the trees established. And then I don't know exactly, it was probably four or five years after we did the work mm -hmm. that that fire and then flood event came through and, you know, got a letter from the client saying, your work saved our house twice. Wow. And, and how much does this work cost a client? Like, is it super expensive to do? Because, uh, you know, you have materials, you have a team. Um, I just, you know, there are farmers that listen to the show and people who've been struggling with water systems for years um, I think to know, oh, wow, I can actually do this. And then you do the math on saving your farm. It probably ends up very, very cheap. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. You can do the bare bones where it just accomplishes the ecological features, or you can have a diving board into the water and all these beautiful things that a lot of people like to do because it really, you know, creates a beautiful life and landscape. Uh, you know, our average project is anywhere from twenty to two hundred thousand um, dollars, and then you know the other piece is the landscape itself matters a lot as far as how much it costs. In one landscape, you can do a twenty megaliter dam for cheap, and in another landscape, a two megaliter dam might be just as expensive as that bigger one. And that's really where reading the landscape comes in. So you do things in the right spaces where they're. Uh, economically reasonable. That project that I mentioned, that was probably around $200,000 in total. And it saved a $10 million house in complex. So, you know, the $200,000 is expensive, but it's but a lot cheaper than, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no, thank you for talking financials. Cause I think, you know, that's a huge range. And then that means like a lot of different people can work within that range to do something. And so as I'm listening to this story and as you drop the bombshell that everything you did was illegal, my mind goes straight to why the bleep is that illegal if it is so transformative in restoring a landscape? I mean, should we not be allowing um, anything and anyone who's proving that they can do this and that that farm then will benefit from having a cooler environment, fireproof almost, um, certainly in this case, environment, and landslide-proof environment. Um, doesn't a, a, a landscape cost so much more in so many more ways if we don't do this work? I mean, we should all be jumping on board. Like there should be, you know, instead of like, Pringles billboards, you should be on a billboard, Zach, like <laughs> the man who's saving the planet. Like, I just think it's crazy that more people don't know about this. It really is. And it's a crime that it's, you know, not only should it be easy to do, it should be incentivized to do. Yes. And, uh, you know, something that I, I really like that I've heard Brad Lancaster say is it's not illegal, it's pre-legal. It's not yet. Oh, I legal. like that. That's good. That's optimism. And, and so like in his case in Tucson, Arizona, he was taking water off of the roads, feeding it into the ground. It was all illegal. They did it anyway. They showed it to everyone. They got enough interest in it. Now, not only is it legal, it's required in new developments. And so in a pretty short time period, it's gone from being illegal to required. I think the reason that this is all in place is that we've developed our legal and regulatory context around humans can only do bad. And so humans destroy wetlands, don't let them touch the wetlands. Humans destroy waterways, don't let them touch the waterways. And these are always the regulations that we're going up against. They're very well-intentioned and in many ways they stopped a lot of destruction, but they also prevent any restoration or regeneration. And so we're in this point now where we've degraded and destroyed the environment. Now we're conserving that degraded environment. And so in many ways, these conservation regulations are ahead of their time. We need to regenerate, restore the environment. Then we can talk about conserving it in its healthy state instead of 
<laughs> we don't want to conserve what we've got now. That's just exactly. not a good idea. Exactly. No, 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 no. <laughs> There's exactly. a lot that needs to happen before we move to a conservation model. Um, 100%. Wow. Yeah. And have you done projects in Australia? I have. I have one of uh, my favorite projects. A couple of them actually um, were in Australia. One we did for a worm farmer. We did it right before that big long drought from 2018 to 2020. Um, and it basically saved his farm. He produced more worms than ever before, which in his place is water intensive to keep the temperatures cold, to keep the compost going. Uh, he actually sells them to Bunnings uh, in this conglomerate. And he produced more worms than ever before at the end of that long drought when all of his friends that were farmers had to sell off all their cows, had to sell off the dairy herd, like, didn't have grass, couldn't buy grass, were in this very bleak situation. Yet him on this very steep, poor marginal property had plenty of water for everything he needed. Hmm. Uh, well, my worm farm probably exists because of this guy too, because I bought my first worms from the hardware store. So there you go. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably directly I get to from him how, CD, yeah, actually. Probably are. Um, and my worms are thriving. They're doing great. Nice. So, um, wow. Okay. And then how, when you check back in with a client like that, like has the resilience, do you have the... Um, the the resilience piece on then how it did in a super wet couple of years as well um like one of the other clients you mentioned yeah yeah i mean they they hold up really well in wet events too i one of the big things is you know you always there are all these very little things that if you participate in your landscape it's a matter of moving one pebble at the right time but if water left to its devices can carve away at that for two years before anyone notices, then it, you know, can, it, you know, it's still very small in the adjustments that need to be made, but, you know, now it might actually require adding rocks and things of that nature. Um, but they really, you know, it's, it can be hard for people to understand, but they create in some ways more space for water and more space for dry land by giving water places to go by giving it, areas to collect and concentrate, you also alleviate a lot of the flooding that you might otherwise experience on properties. Um, so, you know, like this property is looking better than ever because the water bodies are nice and charged up. They have all of this clear flowing water moving through them. The farm is super productive. All the terraces are nice and stabilized. Whereas in an unterraced landscape, you might have bits of erosion and runoff it's really able to receive all this rain, build it up into the ground so that in the next drought, you have the water stored from this very wet previous time. Hmm. It just makes so much sense. And, and just coming back to the illegal, um, pre-legal thing, like, cause for me, this, this seems to be quite a large part of the puzzle of starting to do more good. Um, on the perspective of the damaged landscapes around us. How does the average Joe uh, take action? Like how do we even find out whether you could do something like that or not? Um, because it, it seems to me like we want to make sure the right things are legal, like we were talking about with, you know, trying to just control man doing bad. Um, what is actually the, um, the grassroots action step that anyone could take? to keep an eye on this in their community and see, like, could I write to my local representative about something like this? Yeah. And I, you know, I think the, we can always, and we need to change policy, but that comes with awareness and demand. Uh, you know, some of these changes are not done just because of risk, because the people in the positions of authority, their job is, lower and mitigate risk. And something that's unknown is risky by nature. So the process that tends to need to unfold is people have civil courage. They do it anyway. They put it in place. You know, most of these laws, they're not coming after you 
because you didn't get the proper permissions to do something. It's only when neighbors complain, when other people complain, then they might actually follow up. Um, but it's all very complaint driven. And so what we find time and time again is we need people to have civil courage and to follow the laws of nature, even if they contradict with the laws of humans, then we can start to create a precedence and we can show that project. And then that's how the policy then changes so that the people that aren't as courageous uh, can then also participate in it. But it really, the policy will never change until we have those demonstration projects. And once we have them, the policy tends to change pretty quickly because people, they don't believe in what you say, they believe in what they can see. And these are real tangible things that people can see. Uh, so as soon as you get, you know, we have this happen time and time again, you come in and you do one project and then the neighbors want you to do work and then their friends want you to do work. And we keep going back to the same areas because the proof is really in the pudding. What you see is what you get. And we just need enough examples for regulators to see that then we can really change this policy and start making something that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, love it. Oh my gosh, so good, Zach. I think, uh, what what would you like to see? Like, what what do you feel like would be the utopia of this work really getting off the ground? Because it doesn't feel like there's even enough people doing it. And that is exactly the problem. That is the weak link is the people doing it. And so there are these, you know, fairly few examples of great visionary people who ignored all the naysayers and just blazed ahead anyway and accomplished amazing things. These are your Rajendra Singhs, your Sep Holters, your Wangari Mathais. But we need the average person to know how to do this. And we need someone to make that understanding and approach digestible for people so that every farmer can start to do this. Um, and so this is actually exactly why we created Water Stories, because I saw that I can work myself into an early grave and just work 24-7, and it will make no difference whatsoever. The impact will be too small. We actually need hundreds, thousands, even millions of people doing this work around the world, then we can start to change things really quickly. You know, you see what happened in India. We're talking about flowing rivers with fish again in a couple of decades if we work together. And so getting this education out to people, letting them know what's possible, and then training them how to do it. Uh, I think there's so many well-meaning environmental movements and initiatives, but they're too heavy on theory and not heavy enough on the do. Uh, and we really need, you know, it's, you see, again, there's a lot of educators that are out there that haven't actually done a lot of the things that they're teaching about. Yeah. And, I, yeah. That's, I'm so glad you mentioned education. Cause I was thinking kid who cares about the environment as a teenager in a city context, let's say. So they haven't had land exposure. They haven't grown up on a farm necessarily, but they want to do something. And so they study environmental sciences for their year 12 project and da 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 and then they graduate and they think oh well I'll do environmental sciences at uni and they go to university and they study this thing and then they end up in a corporate solar office um for example now I'm not poo-pooing people working in solar it absolutely has its place and it's helping us clean up the air I completely get that um but at the same time that seems to be the funnel for a huge percentage of people in the cities who care about the environment they end up in offices instead of on land. And I feel like that's a piece of what needs to change as well. 100%. And I feel, and I've seen it in so many of my friends and in parts of myself, it's a trap in that you want to do good. And so you go to university trying to learn how to do good. And in so many settings, the university has been co-opted by corporate interests through their funding. And so you look at my school and in the sustainable foods and bioenergy systems program, they teach kids that you have to use fertilizer, you have to use pesticide, you cannot grow food without these things. Mm. And so all these people who care about the environment, who want to do better, go to school, then get taught the same 
you know, the same system that we've got. Yeah, exactly. And I, then I've, I've just, spoken to farmers who have been through this and then learn like two decades later on their farm, hold on, that's not working. And not only that, then at the end of that, you're crippled with debt if you don't have the fortune of having someone else pay it for you. And so now you've been, you know, abused, trained in the wrong things, crippled by debt and put out into the workforce without any real skills, without any tangible things that you can offer people. I oftentimes tell people, you know, I have a university degree in ecology. It taught me a lot of fancy words that I can sometimes use to impress people, but nothing practical that I use on a daily basis that I all learned from this apprenticeship mentorship with someone who is actually doing it. Uh, and so that's why we've tried to create this program that offers as best it can in a remote sense, that mentorship and that growth so that that young kid who wants to help save the environment, instead of paying, you know, 20 or 200,000 or whatever it is for university, you can pay two or 3000, go through a six month program, get highly trained in a specific skill that you can immediately market to people. And not only that, be trained in how to run a business in it. And so now we can actually move those people who are very well-intentioned into good things in the workforce. Mm -hmm. So good. I'm so glad you guys are doing this. It's such an important piece of the puzzle to replicate the work um, rather than just live, do the work, die. And then like, hopefully one or two people learnt something from you to do it then. Um, yeah, really special. And can I ask you a final question? Because we do have a situation where a lot of people live in cities right now. Um, and I think the COVID times have taught us that maybe there's a different way and we can expand and, and create smaller networks of more, um, more regional spaces. But, you know, I'm here in inner Sydney and I always like to uh, acknowledge that a lot of people are living that way. And what can the urban person do in this um, this need for for better retention of water? Like I have my dehumidifier running, for example, in wet season and then use it to feed my plants. So I'm, you know, using the water instead of letting it go down the drain as a small example, but there's obviously got to be a lot more we can do in, in a, on a wider scale. Absolutely. And I think cities are where some of the most severe hydrological disturbances are happening, both in their use of water and extraction from other areas, and then in their treatment of water within the city itself. Uh, so I think there's actually an immense amount that people can do in the city. Um, now, it takes a lot more cooperation, it takes a lot more people to agree. It's a longer process, but also in the city, you have an unfair advantage in access to governance. So people in the rural country can't make their voices heard as much, but people in the city really can. And I think a big thing we need to start doing is being voices for the voiceless whether that's the waterways, the trees, the animals, the things that aren't represented in our human decision-making, we need to start thinking in their better interest as well. And there are a lot of ways that we can actually create water infiltration and recharge either within or right around a city. So how a city decides to manage its water resources have an impact not just on the people in the city, but the surrounding landscape. Again, how much do we either feed water from uphill, immediately downhill? You know, we take water from reservoirs, feed it to the house, put it into the sewers, pipe it downhill. We're short-circuiting the water cycle. The more we can take gray water and then feed that into the ground after its use, or take water off of all of the stormwater drains and feed that into infiltration systems. Now for one, it helps with the sewer systems, it helps with the wastewater treatment plants, but it also starts to actually recharge some of that water into the landscape. In Denmark, they have beautiful examples where they have floodable parks. So the park is a nice greenery in the dry season, and then portions of it actually flood in the wintertime to help manage the stormwater and also to help recharge groundwater into the earth. Mm -hmm. That's great. I was going to ask you if there was a city example that you could use. Um, so, yeah, becoming more strategic and then 
you know, having not just the solar representative in the council uh, who's doing the permits and the incentivizing, but a water incentivizer as well. Like that would just be amazing. And and do you believe it's it's possible in our near future? Like how do we make water? This is my last question, I promise. How do we make water top of mind? What, because that is, I mean, people will be listening to this now and thinking, hold on, we're not having the right conversations. What do we do? What's the next step? You know, it really just comes down to sharing this with other people. I find that it's so simple. In if you just explain it in simple terms to others, people get it. People mm. get it right away. Whether I'm in the car with a taxi driver or on the plane <laughs> next to somebody, you know, all walks of life, when they start asking me what I do, oh man, that just like gives me all the leeway to open this conversation. And by the end, they don't want to let me out of the car. They're talking my ear off so much. I'm the and same. I- oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> so good. Yeah. And so I think just helping people understand there's so many young people that are so disenchanted. They think there is no hope. They're being told the whole thing's buggered up. You have no hope. You have no future. Just live in your virtual world because out here is too scary. They need to know what's possible. And everyone needs to know what's possible. And when we start sharing this with people, it happens really quick. You know, I think of water stories, we do no marketing. We don't have any marketing gurus, but there's already people from 152 different countries participating in the community, learning about this, having film nights in their own places. And so I think the big thing is we just need to get the word out. We just need to help people understand the world that's possible because we are being told this very one clear mythology around humans that humans destroy Humans destroy everything we touch. If you want to save it, just put it aside. Don't let humans touch it. We need to understand that we can have a really positive footprint and that we can have a big footprint and have that be beneficial to the landscape. As soon as that paradigm shift starts to happen, you know, I think in many ways, this is the change that will eventually happen. It's a matter of how long does it take? Mm. How screwed up do things get before we start (laughs) changing? Yeah, I always say humans are apocalyptic. We wait for the shit to, to really hit the fan <laughs> before we circuit break. And I'm all about the niggles. And we've got some pretty big niggles right now uh, that we need to pay attention to before it becomes catastrophic. That's really where we're at. And it's human health, planet health, ecosystem. I mean, every single thing, you know, when you describe what you were doing time and again uh, during our chat, to regenerate and to restructure. It's like humans needing to do their sunlight time, drinking good quality water, uh, you know, making sure they move appropriately to the human body every day instead of just sitting down. And you do those things and you start to put in place what helps a human thrive, homeostasis. We need global homeostasis. That's what we need. Absolutely. And I think the timing is perfect for this because when things aren't that bad, people aren't that motivated to change. I was working in Australia in you know January, February 2020. Everyone was ready to change during those fires, every single. And so we need to, unfortunately, in some ways, use these crises to then when we rebuild and recreate, we don't just do the same thing, just mm-hmm. waiting for the, the next, next crisis to happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. we can actually use that crisis time to intervene in a way that fixes the root stress at the bottom of that crisis. Yeah, functional medicine and functional farming and functional landscape uh, 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 design, like it's it's all about that holistic approach. Um, Zach, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so happy to be able to share your work with people because it's very important. So thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a wonderful, wonderfully fun conversation as well. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast 
and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.